Hello, Jazz Session listeners. I am Jason Crane, host of the Jazz Session, announcing the 100 by 300 campaign. That's right, my goal is to get 100 members by the 300th show to keep the Jazz Session going, and you can join very easily. Just visit thejazzsession.com and click on either the join link at the top of the page or the one on the side of the page. There are monthly levels starting at 10 bucks a month. There are yearly levels starting at $110 a year. Please join the people who have already become members and help keep the Jazz Session going. The Jazz Session receives no external funding from any source uh, up to and including All About Jazz, and that means for me to keep doing it, I need you. Thousands and thousands of you listen to every show, and if you could find the, uh, the cost of maybe two cups of coffee uh, a month in your couch cushions, you can help keep the show going for years to come. That is the 100 by 300, 100 members by the 300th show. Join now at thejazzsession.com. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of this show is available for free at TheJazzSession.com. You can subscribe to the show in iTunes if you like. You can also uh, subscribe to it via an RSS reader, and you'll find links to do both of those things at TheJazzSession.com. But most importantly, you'll find a link to become a member I am currently running a little campaign to raise some uh, money for the show and keep the show going. It's the 100 by 300 campaign. I need 100 members by the 300th show, and uh, we're doing pretty well so far. We've got, I think, uh, 13 members, so we're 13% of the way. Um, thank you to everybody who's joined so far, and uh, on Thursday's show, I'll be uh, reading names of people who have joined since the last time I read some names. Today is the birthday of pianist Herbie Nichols. He would have been 92 years old today, and uh, I've always been a fan of Herbie Nichols' music ever since I first heard it. Uh, I guess not always, but for 10 years since the first time I heard it. And I was interested in knowing more about him, but really details about his life are fairly sketchy. Uh, until recently, when Mark Miller published a biography of Nichols called Herbie Nichols' A Jazzist's Life. And in this interview, we'll talk with Mark Miller about Herbie Nichols and also about why he's so kind of shrouded in mystery, so to speak. First, though, let's listen to uh, one of Herbie's tunes. Uh, this is a piece he wrote called Shuffle Montgomery. <laughs> Thank you. 
My guest is the author Mark Miller. He's written a biography of pianist Herbie Nichols called Herbie Nichols, A Jazzist's Life, and it's my pleasure to have Mark on the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jason. I guess uh, I'll ask the the first and, and most obvious question. Why Herbie Nichols? How did you come to be familiar with his music? Well, to be honest, I don't really recall when I first heard it. Um, it would be a while ago, probably when the... Um Blue Note reissues came out. I don't go quite as far back as the 50s when the music itself was released the first time. But um, I was intrigued by the music and I was intrigued by the story. Um, I have a hmm, sort of natural curiosity about folks like Herbie who've um, not done well by history and uh, it didn't do well you know, even by the scene when they were part of it. And it's a theme that kind of runs through all the books that I've written uh, over the years, a bunch of them about jazz in Canada, which is a subject that even Canadians don't know a whole lot about. And then um, I did a book about um, the American musicians who took jazz to other parts of the world during the 1910s and the 1920s. It was called Some Hustling Myths. And then just before Herbie, I did a biography of Valeda Snow, the uh, singer and trumpet player who um, also had quite a career outside of the United States, but doesn't really get much of a look uh, when it comes to the histories that are being written these days. So there's just this kind of curiosity. Uh, I guess it's a, a, a love of the underdog in a way, although I'm not sure that's a fair term for, for these people, but just a, a, a desire to, to check out uh, people that I don't know a lot about. And, uh, you know, if I want to know more and I can't find more, sometimes I just uh, decide to write a book about them. So there we have Herbie. And in Herbie's case, he actually has done significantly better uh, after his death, than he, and in fact, many years after his death than he did when he was alive. And I guess we can maybe get to that in, in a time that makes more chronological sense toward the end of the interview. But that's how I discovered him, uh, I think, about 10 years ago when the Herbie Nichols Project's uh, records were coming out uh, of New York. And I heard those and then sure. you know dug into the Blue Notes. And there have been far more recordings of his music you know, in the last uh, couple of decades than there ever were. There have been. I've included a discography in the book of recordings made by other people of his tunes, and it's uh, well, it's much longer than his own discography for one thing, and it's it's a fascinating look at uh, just how broadly, uh, both in terms of the kinds of musicians and uh, the location of the musicians, uh, how broadly his music has um, been taken up. Mark, obviously you've you've written a biography here, and I encourage people to read it. It's uh, it's excellent. But can you uh, give a little thumbnail sketch of of who Herbie was and where he kind of fits chronologically in the jazz uh, timeline? Well, Herbie was a pianist and composer who is usually uh, connected to jazz history when he's connected at all as being a kind of well, definitely a contemporary of Thelonious Monks. And in some ways, the suggestion is um, that he is a an acolyte of Thelonious Monk, which I don't entirely buy, personally. But uh, Herbie was born in 1919 in New York, and uh, his career was almost entirely in New York. A couple of trips here and there, but um, nothing more than that. And he came up 
through the piano styles of the the thirties through stride and um by the time bebop was uh, emerging, he was on that scene, but kind of um off in a corner he he was at mittens and he was at Monroe's. But somehow, even by then, he was doing something that uh, his contemporaries, his uh, his contemporaries who were moving towards bebop, couldn't quite get to, couldn't quite relate to. And I think part of that is that um, he had other hopes. I think one of the key quotes uh, in in Herbie's uh, own words is that he always wanted to be a Prokofiev, and when that didn't pan out, he decided to become an Ellington instead. Which is to say that he really wanted to be someone working in the classical tradition. But as a young African-American in Harlem, he really didn't have access to the kind of um, educational academic opportunities in terms of conservatories and and all the rest of it. So he chose instead to become an Ellington. And, uh, you know, for those of us who admire Ellington, that's certainly not um, a bad second choice. In fact, it's a very good first choice if he were to make it. But it meant that Herbie's horizons were much broader, perhaps, than the people that he was coming up with on the New York scene. And uh, I think that comes through both in the way he lived his life as a kind of, as an intellectual, as someone who wrote, as someone who wrote poems, uh, someone who painted for a time. And it comes through in his music in terms of all the references that uh, he draws into his compositions and his playing. throughout the book that um, one one of the many possible reasons that Herbie stayed as under the radar as he did was that he was so unlike so many of his colleagues at the time that he uh, he just didn't participate in the same kind of uh, somewhat ironically jazzist life uh, you know that we've come to uh, we've come to associate you know the uh, a lot of hard drinking you know uh, drug use a lot of partying uh, the yeah, kind of whole like bebop too. scene and he wasn't like that can you talk a little bit about about him as a uh, as a person or a personality sure well even his use of the word jazzists is unique it's not a term that was much if at all in circulation 
you know, you talk about jazz musicians, you talk about jazzers. The jazzist is almost like an invention of his own to set himself apart. And he kept doing that in his career. He had various ways of um, almost perversely at times distinguishing himself from everybody else. So he didn't want to be perceived as being one of the gang. And of course, that didn't help in terms of his uh, public profile. Um, a, a very good example is the occasion in 1956 when he had an opportunity to write an essay about himself for Metronome magazine, which at the time was a competitor of downbeats and was widely read by jazz fans and jazz musicians. And he presented himself in terms of uh, his classical influences, in terms of uh, the artists, the you know the visual artists who inspired him, the dancers. Uh, painted a whole picture of himself that I would suspect the average metronome reader wouldn't be able to relate to at all. And um, and this was sort of just on the occasion of his first uh, Blue Note recordings being released. So it was a public relations job. It was, um, shall we say, ill-advised. But that was Herbie. He, uh, he just saw himself as someone apart. And, uh, you know, he often spoke about the third world. Indeed, he has a composition called The Third World. And this was not anything to do with the kind of geopolitical um, distinction that we, we use the, the third world to make now. This was just his concept of where he sat. He certainly wasn't in the same world as everybody else. But at the same time, he was this very gentle, modest kind of guy. He's a very tall fellow. I think he was 6'4 or something. So physically, he was impressive, but uh, not in any way threatening. And... Uh, Frankly, in, in, in the interviews that I did with, with the musicians who knew him or worked with him, I didn't hear an unkind word, uh, maybe a little bit of frustration that uh, he, he didn't have that kind of hustling chops. Um, but uh, everyone thought very, very warmly of the man. I wonder, Mark, and, and really all we can do is, is guess uh, mm -hmm. at this point, but I wonder if maybe Herbie wouldn't have fit in a little better in our time when it's it's more common for musicians to draw on a broader range of influences, at least in the jazz world. In fact, it's extremely common. Uh, and I, I know just of the, the few hundred uh, people I've spoken to in the last few years, um, there there's much more of uh, an influence of uh, the hard sciences. I see many more people making albums that have uh, poetry, you know, built into them or inspired by poems and paintings. And certainly that thing that wasn't unknown then. But it seems like maybe there'd be a little more room for someone like Herbie uh, to move in this day and age. I wonder what you think. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, he was ahead of his time in that respect, and um, I think that may account. Uh, for what you alluded to earlier, which is the fact that his music has had more currency. Um, his compositions, for example, have had more currency now in, in quite a few years after his death than they did at the time. Um, in, in a sense, the jazz world has caught up to him. Uh, and uh, I suppose that's part of his, his sense of himself as an intellectual and, and someone who had a very broad sense of the world. You know, he was one who was well and widely read and um, had a kind of intellectual curiosity that, that uh, again took him to places that um, he probably didn't bump into many of his uh, contemporaries at when he was out there you know checking them things out
Mark, was this a, a difficult book to write purely from a research point of view? It, it strikes me that was a figure who is, uh, I, don't, I don't know if obscure is the right word, but certainly less recognized like Herbie, that it presents many more challenges to the biographer. What was it like for you? It was a challenge. Um, and perhaps as, as someone who lives in Toronto, in Canada, perhaps I wasn't ideally placed to take it up, but it didn't look as though anyone else was going to be doing it. So, um, But no, I, I think I went into it knowing that there was a fairly small body of material that was out there. And we can talk about the A.B. Spellman chapter in Spellman's book, Four Lives in the Bebop Business. And we can talk about the various things that Roswell Rudd has written about Herbie as liner notes to reissues of Herbie's music, the Blue Note music. Beyond that, I wasn't really sure what there was, and indeed there wasn't a great deal more uh, written about Herbie, but the surprise was that Herbie himself wrote a lot. Uh, he wrote for uh, the New York Age, which is uh, an African-American newspaper, um, he wrote for Music Dial, which is a short-lived Harlem publication, and he wrote for Rhythm. This is all during the 1940s. So he left a fair amount of commentary then, and then he did some liner notes. He did the piece for Metronome, and um, I got a hold of a few letters that he'd written to various people. So the, the Herbie in the first person turned out to be um, quite a rich source. And then finally I found a, a radio interview that someone had done with him towards the end of his life, so... Um, there was a lot of material there, and it was just a matter of um, talking to various people who uh, I knew had worked with them or I knew had um, uh, some contact with them. And in the course of doing the research, uh, becoming aware of other people, some of whom I'd never heard of before, and um, tracking them down. Uh, it is a book, I would say. Uh, this is a sign of the times. It's a book that could not have been written without the Internet, just in terms of the... Uh, the value of the internet, internet in finding people, like taking somebody's name and finding that person, like in the entirety of the United States, finding that person. Couldn't have done it with the, the internet. So it's, that was um, very helpful. And it was a lot of fun, I have to say. I mean, it, Herbie's story is a very sad one. Um, but I had a very good time writing the book. It was a lovely project. Mark, you mentioned uh, how many people connect Herbie with Thelonious Monk and mm -hmm. often refer to him as a as a monk acolyte, and you said that you don't buy that. Why not? Well, my sense is that the two of them came up in parallel, um, and they you know they both come out of Stride, they both come out of Allington, but I see them coming out of those things side by side. I don't see them coming out um, successively. In other words, Monk first, and then Herbie through Monk. And I think if you go back to the very earliest things that we have of Herbie's music on record, and I'm thinking of a uh, recording that Mary Lou Williams made in, I think, was it 1951, of um, what Herbie called Stenel and what she called Opus Z. It's, um, it, it's, it has a character unto itself that's very Herbie-ish, if you will. And, uh, you know, we're talking about a, a piece from the early 40s, which is, um, you know, consistent with Monk's earliest pieces. So even then, uh, Herbie was on to his own thing and continued from there. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure exactly why the two of them, uh, why Herbie sort of gets bracketed off with Monk. Of course, it's always um, easy and convenient to take the big figure and tuck in 
everyone else underneath them, you know, the way Elmo Hope has been kind of um, slipped in there as well, for example. But uh, it seems to me that Herpes' um, body of work is, is unique. It's his own. himself uh, mentions, uh, I can't exactly remember uh, in, in which of his own writings or interviews, but it's in, in the book, he mentions that he thinks there's a kind of a showmanship aspect to Monk, the the mm-hmm. dancing and the dress and the, the yeah, kind of behavior yeah. of Monk that Herbie himself lacked and and he seems to suggest maybe in the, uh, that that's one of the reasons that although he was developing in parallel he didn't get the recognition uh, that Monk did because of the way he carried himself. I, yes, that's right. I, I, early in, in both of their careers when Herbie was writing for these little publications in Harlem, he wrote articles about Monk. He did a couple of pieces and they stand as two of the very earliest um, print articles about Monk. And uh, they were flattering but guarded. You know, he has some critical things to say about Monk. Uh, As it transpired by the time we got into the early 60s and Monk was heading for the cover of Time magazine, uh, Herbie did confide to another musician how he felt somehow that um, that that there was this aspect of showbiz to Monk, and uh, and showbiz was something that I think Herbie disdained. It was obviously a game that he could not, would not, um, did not play, and and, and to be as um, hidebound about it as Herbie apparently was, obviously was not to his advantage. But I think he saw Monk doing all these things and uh, thought, you know, I don't have a chance. I won't do those things. I can't do those things. One uh, big blank that this book helped me fill in was how exactly Herbie lived for all the years that he did. Um, you know, just from the liner notes that I had read and the, uh, the the few sketches that I had seen, it, it wasn't really clear how he actually made a living as a musician. And I was surprised to yeah. learn that he spent so much time playing in styles other than the one to which he was most attracted. In fact, he spent most of his career doing that. He had very few opportunities to play uh, his own music in what we would consider kind of a, a normal mainstream club context. Can you talk a little bit about about Herbie uh, survived over the years? Well, in terms of his own music, I think he might have played it a half a dozen times in public. 
uh, no, maybe he had a half dozen gigs. That would be a better way to put it, because he did have a an intermission um, piano playing spot at uh, the Cafe Bohemia for a couple of months in just after the the first Blue Notes were released. But you're right; for the most part, he was playing in Dixieland bands and occasionally rhythm and blues bands, and also occasionally with sort of older musicians and and styles that were not Dixieland, not rhythm and blues, but, you know, swing or jump or, or whatever. Most of the time it was Dixieland, and he played with some of the greats. Uh, he's on an LP with Rex Stewart, for example. Uh, well, as I say that, I'm thinking, okay, we don't really think of Rex Stewart as a Dixieland player, but uh, nevertheless, uh, all of those guys from the, the swing bands found themselves after the swing bands uh, went into Eclipse. Uh, all those guys found themselves in need of work, and a lot of them who could went on to to play in Dixieland bands. So Rex Stewart had one, and Herbie was on that gig for a while, and um, played with Conrad Janis, who the world probably knows as Mindy's father from Mork and Mindy, uh, in a different career. But you know, Conrad Janis had a, a Dixieland band in New York in the fifties, and Herbie was in that band, and I was successful in finding Conrad Janis, which was kind of fun. Um, and he could play that stuff. I mean, he was a very uh, well, mm, well-trained. He's a very learned pianist in the jazz tradition. Uh, he could play Jolly Roll Morton. He could play Stride. So nothing really threw him. And I think that it, even as that all went into his conception of his own music, it also was the thing that kind of saved him as a as a working musician that he could do that stuff if someone wanted it to wanted him to, and that's how he made his living. excellent job in the book, I think, painting the story arc of Herbie's own perception of his career as a musician, uh, going back as early as uh, some of the first uh, pieces that he wrote for the uh, the papers that you talked about before in yeah, magazines, yeah. where he talks about um, 
you know, being optimistic about making a lot of money and that it's a pretty easy racket to be a jazz musician, <laughs> you know, down to the end where, uh, toward the end of his life where he says, you know, that he feels he was a much stronger player before when he was healthy and, and he's kind of realizing, even though this is before he, re- he knew he was going to die, he's realizing that a lot of things have passed him by and he hasn't, he hasn't had the opportunities others have. And it, you said before, it's a very sad story. It does seem very tragic and he, and he seems to be aware of that. The, the tragedy of the story to some degree I think so I mean, obviously any musician any artist who has developed a body of work um, that he or she believes in and that the few people who comment on it comment on it favorably any artist in that position who who continues to live in obscurity is going to also live with a great deal of frustration I don't know that I sense there was bitterness though I think maybe more resignation on his part. Again, this is some aspect of his his soul that he he was uh, such a gentle guy. I, I don't get the sense that there was a, a lot of anger there, disappointment, resignation, sadness. But he was philosophical, afraid. And perhaps if he'd been a little less, he might have approached his career a bit differently, and uh, his career might have turned out a bit differently. Mark, can you talk about your uh, your conversations with uh, Frank Kimbrough and the role that they that they played in this book? Well, Frank in particular, um, as I note in the introduction to the book, I decided to do this one day when I was I stopped in at a uh, coffee shop in Toronto uh, for a cup of tea. Not a coffee drinker here. I had a cup of tea, and and as I walked into the place, I was I heard this really interesting. Um, piano trio on the the, um, the cafe sound system and it, it struck me pretty quickly that oh that's, that's, that's Herbie Nichols and at the time I was working on a different book project but it this sort of stirred me so much and I thought gee someone's got to do a book about Herbie so that very night I sent Frank Kimbrough an email didn't know Frank uh, and he didn't know me from Adam but I just uh, asked him because he'd been so essentially involved in uh, promoting Kirby's um, music. Did he know of anyone who was doing a um, biography? And he wrote back uh, almost immediately saying, well, no, I'm not aware of anyone, and frankly, I don't think it could be done because there's so little information about Herbie. And, uh, of course, I love those kind of challenges. So it kind of went from there. And in the course of doing the book, uh, you know, I, I... had many emails with Frank about one thing and another, and uh, he was very supportive, very encouraging. And uh, in fact, uh, once I finished the manuscript, I sent it off to him for so he could read it. And uh, again, very supportive. Finally, got to meet him about a year after it was published, which was cool. You obviously uh, had been familiar with Herbie's music before you wrote this book, but, oh, yeah. but after having uh, done all this research, uh, do you listen to the music with different ears now? I think probably I do. Uh, you, you might expect that that his biographer would be like a an absolute fan of of Herbie Nichols' recordings, and I, and I have to say I'm not entirely. I find um, their legacy for me is in the compositions more than the playing. I find the playing kind of repetitive and kind of limited. And I'm not sure how much of that is a fully uh, uh, accurate 
representation of his playing. I don't know that we have on record Herbie Nichols at his greatest as a pianist. Um, it would stand to reason that he'd be really nervous making those recordings because he'd been after Alfred Lyon at Blue Note for like 10 years for the chance to make a record. And finally he gets it, and he's in the studio with Art Blakey and Al McKibben, and it's okay. We're recording. Well, you know, this is like a culmination of a long dream. And I'm not sure he quite gets on track. Um, and I'm, I'm saying that, again, based on what I hear in the uh, in the playing itself. Um, the tunes are great. Love the tunes. Um, the playing, I don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's not there for me to quite the same extent. And that, of course, is a perspective that I came to after listening to it an awful lot in the course of um, writing the book. I think uh, that makes us that much luckier that people have taken up uh, Herbie Nichols' baton, uh, you know, in, in the last uh, couple of decades, and we've yep. got so many recordings uh, of his music because we can hear, um, you know, in, in in some ways he he did become well a, a Prokofiev. I mean, he's uh, he's not necessarily known for his his playing. He's known, you know, for his mind and for for what his pen put on paper. And we can hear those things in Fuller Flower. I think on the recordings that other people have made of Herbie's music, where there's a chance to stretch out and a chance also to invest the compositions with more than just you know the the one piano trio captured over a couple of days. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then there's so many different things in those compositions that different musicians can come to them and find. Um, something of their own in them to play. Um, that's the, the remarkable thing uh, as you look at the discography of the folks who recorded his stuff. Uh, it's all over the map. You know? and, and then he left it open that way so that people could get in there and say, okay. You know, as, as Beale Neidlinger did, for example, turning uh, one of Herbie's tunes into a bluegrass thing, like a hoedown. My guest is Mark Miller. He's the author of uh, many books about jazz, uh, including Herbie Nichols' A Jazzist's Life on the Mercury Press. Uh, Mark, I, I'm really appreciative that this book exists, and uh, thank you for taking the time to talk about it. Oh, it's been absolutely my pleasure.
That's music from Dutch saxophonist Jorrit Dijkstra performing Herbie Nichols' The Gig. As I was putting this show together, I realized that although uh, I referenced Herbie's death when talking to Mark Miller, I never asked Mark about it. And so I thought I would just add that uh, Herbie Nichols was diagnosed with uh, leukemia uh, when he was 34 years old in, uh, in April of 1963. Uh, he certainly knew of his diagnosis by April 8th, and uh, he died on the morning of April 12th uh, at the age of 34. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session here on Herbie Nichols' birthday. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com. You can also subscribe via iTunes or an RSS reader, and there are links to do that at thejazzsession.com. Please do become a member of the show. Looking for 100 members by the 300th show. I thank you very much for uh, supporting the Jazz Session. That's what's going to keep it going for years to come. My thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show, Dave Rabel for the logo to the show, and you for listening to the show. Now get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.